It's the OU Jewish Reaction Show every single Tuesday here at the Nahum Siegel Network following JM in the AM. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to NSN, to the Nahum Siegel Network, and enjoying yet another full day of great programming. It is much appreciated. You can check us out on social media, on Facebook, Nahum Siegel Network, on uh, Twitter, at Nahum Siegel Net. And um, today we have uh, another collection of great guests. Rabbi Ari Khan is with us, Echoes of Eden. Safer Vayikra is in my hands in search of holiness, insights into the weekly Torah portion. The um, OU Press has joined with Geffen Publishing House in co-publishing Rabbi Ari Khan's essays on the book of Vayikra. And he is with us via telephone to discuss the book of Vayikra. Rabbi Ari Khan, welcome back to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you so much. Good to hear your voice. Appreciate that. This is, is am I right that this is the third? That, uh, no, that, we, we, fi- we finished them all. Yeah, I, I went through this last time with you. I apologize. Right, now, now I recall. So they're, <laughs> they're, they're all done, I guess, just this time of year. The, um, <laughs> this time of year, we tend to focus on one of them, and then a few partials from now, we focus on a different one, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Which makes sense. Well, that's where they have Purim and Pesach this time of year, so we can avoid Vayikra. Oh, that's the reason? <laughs> that's actually not bad. Um, and I'm sure you're saying that, of course, tongue in cheek, because there's so much. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. The four parshiot. I mean, just think about it. Rabbis get to avoid half of Vayikra because they get to speak about the special Shabbatot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, but the reason I say it like that—that you're—that I thought you were somewhat tongue in cheek—is because it's so rich. It's so rich with material. You would say, even though it's not exactly the narrative that we're used to in the first two books of the Torah. Correct. No, the, tr- the truth is is that I think people have a little bit of a fear of Ayikra, but there is a lot of lot of things to learn from it, and much of it is on mind. Interesting. Um, we, we know, many of us have, you know, all through the years have been uh, educated in terms of what the different themes of Ayikra are, and I guess we could you know, talk about the fact that it's called Torah Kohanim, and of course Karbanot is a very big theme. Procedures, laws, as opposed to some of the narrative that I alluded to earlier. Anything to add to that? Are there other themes that uh, that you would say are part of the book of Ayikra that uh, are not necessarily always paid attention to? Well, let me put it like this, just as, as a starting point. If when Sefer Shemot ended, we went straight into Bamidbar, I don't think anybody would have noticed. Right. On a, on a chronological level, that's where the story picks up. It's not just that there's a lack of narrative in Vayikra, it's that the narrative doesn't continue there. The narrative continues in the book of Bamidbar. Now, on the other hand, you know, you look at that very first, you know, this goes back to last week, that very first verse when it says Vayikra Moshe, it doesn't say who called him. I mean, who, who's calling? So the who call, I mean, we know who it is. We know it's God. But how do we know that? And that's because that's the way that Shemot ended. Now, if you really paid attention, in Perikuf Dalad, when Moshe goes up to the mountain, you have the exact same scene taking place, in the same verse even, where Moshe tries to go in, and then he can't continue, and then God calls him from, from the cloud. That's in one verse. There the Vayikra El Moshe is in the same verse of him not being able to continue. And over here, what was in Perikaf Dalid became two different books. So then you have to just say, okay, so now what is this? What's going on? Because the chronology continues someplace else, so what is this continuation? And it seems to be one really of uh, something which is much more personal, much more intimate. 
God is calling him in to his home, as it were, which I guess is what the Beit HaMikdash is, or the Mishkan, and think, okay, let's continue the relationship more in private. So I see a completely different type of texture to the book. But uh, if you're going to ask me, is there anything else that we miss? I think that it's the exception, and there are really two, but I'm going to focus on one, the exception that helps us understand the book, and that is where we do have narrative, which is in Parshat Shmini, right. and especially the deaths of, uh, of Nadav and Avihu, because what that creates is what I would call laws of separation. Separating between, now you can fill out the rest of it, it starts with wine. I guess this is a bad thing to say before Purim, <laughs> only like really say this afterwards, but it starts with, with wine and our ability, you know, that we make a Havdalah, and it goes on to all the laws of Tuma and Tara. Again, that's not pure carbonot, that's separations. The whole idea of, of Tuma, if you had to define Tuma, I think it's a very hard word to define, and forget about searching for a word in English, Tuma is the extent that one needs to separate from the Mishkan. To be away, is that interesting? To be, what Tuma is. To be away from the central, most important physical part of the, of the people, frankly. Right. And therefore, what's the most extreme Tuma which is there? So now you, right away, you would have said, because we all went, you know, right, Tishiva, right? We all learned the same thing. You said, no, Avia Vota Tuma is Tuma Meit. Right. But the most extreme Tuma is actually Sarad. Because they're outside of all three all three machana, which means, again, if I define Tuma as distance from the Mishkan, then I have a new candidate to become the most extreme Tuma. And so, I, I, again, we can speak much more about Tuma, but I just want to say what you're asking for larger you know, issues. The larger issue is one of separations. Understood. Rabbi Ari Khan is with us. Go back for a second uh, to what you just alluded to uh, in regard to you know, the private Moshe with God as opposed to, you know, his role as leader and the more public role that he had in the earlier, in the earlier Parshios. Um, is, is there something we, we learn from that? We learn from his, uh, you know, relationship to God and what God wanted from him on a more private level? What, what is it that we're supposed to gain from that? Well, again, and I'm going to, you know, perhaps come back and give you the same answer again and again. Shmini is the key book, the, the key Parsh in the whole book. Everything sets up in Shmini where Arun is going to take Moshe's place, which means Moshe really is like a Kohen Gadol for a part of it, and then Arun's going to be put in. Very significantly, the offering Arun's going to bring is going to be an eagle, right? N nobody can miss that, right? An eagle as a chatan. No, I mean, that, that's obvious. But even there in that first day when he does everything and he brings everything and he blesses the people, nothing happens. And then Moshe gets up and blesses them with Arun, and then it says the glory of God comes down. Part of what happens in Vayikra is Moshe also stepping aside, at least in terms of the realm of Kohen, and allowing or giving that over to Aaron, as God had, had said. And maybe part of it is, is that Moshe, who never really had sin, you know, again, to a very great extent, it's not a question that Moshe's sin was connected to sin, especially if you follow the approach that the whole idea of the Mishkan follows the sin of the golden calf. Moshe is the one person who's not guilty. He's the one person who's not there. He's therefore the one person who doesn't need it. I mean, you just think about, you, know, you think about Yom Kippur for a second. Yom Kippur is a day we don't eat, we don't drink, there's no, there's no relations, and now you think about right. the very things that we did by the Chet Ego are the things that we can't do in Yom Kippur, and that's the day that we were forgiven. 
again, on that first Yom Kippur, Moshe is, in a sense, the Kohen Gadol. He's the one who goes and prays to God. He gets forgiveness to the people, but then he steps aside because the reality is it's not, part, it's not him. So therefore, he starts it, first Yom Kippur, steps aside. He starts the Mishkan, steps aside. And then Aaron comes in, and he's going to be the one who's going to represent the people. And obviously, his tears are going to be real, real tears because he's the one who experienced the sin. Wow. So the, the, a sincerity that could only be felt or displayed by somebody who went through it. Yeah, you, you, you know the beautiful uh, mashal that I'm sure lots and lots of rabbis use. When a person when a person sins, there's, there's sort of like a rope between us and God. When we sin, you break the rope. Right. But when you break the rope, then you have to tie a new knot when you do tshuva. So now, what's the net result? You're closer to God than you were before. All right. Wow. Rabbi Ari Khan is with us, talking about Echoes of Eden, this time, of course, Sefer Vayikra in Search of Holiness, Insights into the Weekly Torah Portion, OU Press, Geffen Publishing House. It's funny to talk about Shmini being the uh, centerpiece of the narrative of Vayikra, if there is any narrative, because that's the parsha we we most often read the most of all the parshas in Vayikra because of the quirk in Pesach usually ending up, maybe this year's an exception, but Pesach usually ending up at a time of year where, you know, Shmini gets read the most on Monday, Thursday, on Mincha Shabbos, etc. Ah, I, I, never, I never realized that. I think that uh, one of the... And this is the advantage of having uh, children whose bar mitzvah parsha is Shemini. The, the, I, be, I, believe, I believe some years it's read a total of eight times, hence Shemini, because of the way Pesach falls out. So, so it's, it's only one of two pieces of narrative in a vicar. Should I put you on the spot and ask you what the other one is? I'm trying to think myself. Um, <laughs> give me a second. This really is on the spot. Yeah, what, what would it be? <laughs> the other one's the Mikhalel. Ah, Which that's seems it. To be a little disconnected. Yes, that is it. And that's it. Those are the, those are the only two pieces of uh, of narrative. All right. So it's interesting. Karbanot are such a central part of the sacrifices. Such a central part of Jewish existence, and we essentially have none of it today. We are missing. What, what would you say? A very a very significant number of mitzvot. A significant uh, a, a portion of our of our avoda. Which is complete, which has been completely transformed historically from what it was supposed to be according to the Torah. That's true, but by the way, if you're looking for more mitzvot, you know you can always pull the show over to Israel. There's lots of things in terms of agriculture that you can, you know, fill in in terms of your uh, daily or yearly counts. So just in case this was a personal statement, so uh, no, I understand that and I accept that. Yeah, but, <laughs> but my my point is that uh, you know historically, the you know one of the most important parts of our tradition has essentially been eliminated as daily ritual. Correct. And it's something which, you know, it's foreign. It's, it's something which we really, for the most part, don't understand that well. I, I did see an interesting Rashi, which I hope most of us saw this Rashi last week, but Rashi says, Reach Nichoach, the pleasant sense to me. He says, what is Reach Nichoach? It's Nachat Ruach. But, but what's the Nachat Ruach? Why does it give me a pleasant spirit? Or is, you know, you get, uh, how do you say Nachas in English? I guess it's one of these words hard to translate. Yeah, it is hard to translate. Rashi says, what's the, what's the nachas, what's the nachat ruach? Because I said you should do it and you did it. Which means Rashi seems to be turning it much more in terms of the obedience, the fact that you didn't listen to me, so now I'm going to give you something else to listen to, giving you another task to do, just so that we can again fix the relationship. 
I think the main issue, and this is some mistake that we sometimes make, it's a question of relationship. It's not a question of magic, that if you sin or you mess up, or even if you want to be on God's good side, you go and you push this button or that button, and not now everything is done, it's magic. Rashi's saying, no, it's, it's the relationship. It's all about the relationship. Matter of fact, Rashi in Tehillim goes much further, and he quotes the same, the same teaching of, the, of Chazal, and he says, you know, you thought I needed Corbono. You thought this is going to make my day. And you thought, you know, and, and so on. And, and, and then he goes, I never wanted this. I don't need this. It's not, you know, it's not about this. But Rashi there is quoting some very difficult verses in Yirmiyahu, in the seventh chapter, where people use the Mishkan or the Beit HaMikdash as an excuse for not having to get better. Their basic approach was we can bribe God and everything's good. We know his number. We know his bank account. And, you know, life is good. So I think that at the point that the Corbinot become a hindrance to the, to the relationship, at that point, uh, God removes it. And, you know, we all have this, uh, this side to us that, you know, we think we, we live in a world of fantasy. We think some, you know, how can we ever sin? You know, we think that maybe God's not watching, or if he's watching, he doesn't know, or he doesn't care, or he, you know, is going to forget. And, and we know cognitively all that's not the case. He's watching, and he cares, and he knows. He never forgets. So it must be then we have a backup plan that we can bribe him. You know, we're going to give to the building fund. And uh, that, that's going to fix everything. And that's not the it case. It just doesn't work that way. Rabbi Ari Khan is with us. You talk about the uh, the voice only coming to Moshe in the beginning of Ayikra, Ayikra al Moshe, and, and so then then what you're describing really um, uh, uh, solidifies that point, meaning that the nation in general were not ready to listen to the voice of God, and only Moshe was at the level where he could, right? Correct, correct. You know, you know what? I, I sometimes wonder. Maybe God speaks. Maybe God still speaks to all of us. And just that we're really not listening. You know, this whole question of why and where prophecy ends, and, uh, which, by the way, is connected, according to Chazal, to the beginning of the second Beit HaMikdash, that once we rebuilt it, they got them, so they were they're very nervous, they're very anxious. You know, we're celebrating, but the first Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. So what guarantee do we have? So says, hold it, why was it destroyed? Because of idolatry. So they all prayed at that moment to take away absolutely remove the need for idolatry. And the Vilna Gon has an unbelievable comment. It's, it's found in his uh, comment to Seder Olam. He says, the moment they daven to take away the Yetzirah, right, the evil inclination for idolatry, at that moment prophecy ended. Just ended. So again, I have to, I have to meaning they always seem to have needed a balance between these conflicting things. So it could be that, you know, that's what I always wonder about. So prophecy ended. Does that mean that we lost our ability to hear? Or does that mean that God stopped speaking? But Moshe, who's the greatest prophet, so he's the one who always hears the word of God. So was that word of God, was it out loud? But just, I mean, again, God speaks out loud, no one else hears it, only Moshe hears it. So it could be this is totally a theoretical uh, discussion. But the word of God apparently rings out, and only Moshe has that spiritual sensitivity to be able to hear it. Wow. Uh, before I let you go, uh, what do you think of the timing of Parshas Tzav and, uh, and the holiday of Purim during that week? Is there any connection that we could make between the two? Well, the best connection is that Tzav does start talking about, uh, about some corona that need matzah. So we all know that, that Purim comes out exactly 30 days before Pesach, and therefore you need to start preparing for Pesach in terms of the matzah. But I will say this, that the original Korban Pesach most likely, see, see, this is another thing. When you look at Corbona and you really want to learn them deeply, you need to analyze and to compare and contrast different Corbonot and what, what they're like. 
So the Korban Pesach is essentially a Korban Toda, but a Korban Toda also had chametz in it. So it's a Korban Toda without chametz to it. Right. So that, that itself to me is interesting, is that, the, is that there seems to be the need to bring a Thanksgiving offering. That's what it is. The Korban Toda is a Thanksgiving offering, but, the, but when it comes to Pesach, we divide it, and we only bring the Shtei HaLechem 50 days later when it comes down to Chag Shavuot. That's the other half of that same Korban Toda. On the other hand, what is Purim? Purim is this ability to say thank you to God. It's the ability to this appreciation. It's another type of thanksgiving. And it's the sort of type of thanksgiving which is actually you know, totally revolutionary. It was really at this point that we became partners with God. You know, the, you know, the famous thing, you know, Nasev and Nishma, who revealed the secret and so on and so forth to the, you know, to the people, the secret that the angels use. What, what, what's the big secret? So Nasev and Nishma doesn't, you know, literally what it means, Naseh, we will do the Nishma, is we will continually hear. It's in the present tense moving forward. So what does it mean to continually hear, and why is this a secret that got the angels all excited? You know, there are many people who know how to follow orders. Okay, I take that back. There are some people who know how to follow <laughs> orders. Right. But, but, but what is it that makes not nishma so special? The Gemara then, in fact, says this is a modal oraisa. This is like a protest against the Torah. It says, no, no, they went and they reaccepted it by Purim. What does that mean that they reaccepted it? So I think this is the idea if we can now pull all, a lot of the things that we said in the last couple of minutes. When it came to the story of Purim, prophecy ended. There was no prophecy outside of the land. There was no prophecy there. They weren't told what to do. They had no instructions over here. On the other hand, what does it mean, Vinishma? Vinishma is, I'm going to listen to what God is saying, even when I don't hear the voice speaking to me. Right. Now, I, I say this sometimes by, by a bar mitzvah. What does it mean to be a bar mitzvah? It means you hear what your parents are saying to you, even though when they're not standing there speaking to you. Right. When the Jewish people did this, they became a bar mitzvah. That's, that's Purim. Purim is that we became partners with God in the sense we figured out what he wanted, even when he wasn't speaking to us, and we recreated a rabbinic holiday. The rabbinic holiday was in order to say thank you. So therefore, you know, we had two Andres this year, and Chazal, you know, do have this bit of attention. When should Purim be? Should it be the first Andre or the second Andre? So on the, on the mission that says, Mishnah Nechaz Andre, Marv Mesimcha, so Rashi there, where Rashi says, why is it Mishanichnas Adar Marav Misimcha? He says because it's the months of Purim and Pesach, the months of uh, it seems to be of salvation. That Purim goes together with Pesach. That Pesach is salvation with a capital S. Purim is salvation with a small s. But on the other hand. Pesach is something which God told us and gave us all the details. When it came to Purim, we said, hold it a second. When we had a salvation in Pesach, God told us what to do. We were just now saved. We think this is what God wants of us. And at that point, we created a holiday Medjurabonin, which is, you know, it's, it's theologically breathtaking that we went and did that. But that's the Nasev Nishma, that's the continuing to listen, and that's accepting the Torah all the way out in the city of Shushan. All right, amazing, amazing. Rabbi Ari Khan, it's Echoes of Eden, Save Her Yikra, and of course the other four are out, and everyone's able to uh, to enjoy them. It's an OU Press Geffen Publishing House release, Save Her Yikra, subtitled In Search of Holiness, Insights into the Weekly Torah Portion. Rabbi Khan, uh, always a pleasure to speak to you, and um, uh, have a wonderful Purim and a wonderful Pesach as well. <laughs> okay, take Thanks. care. Rabbi Ari Khan with us here at the Nahum Siegel Network, that is the um, Echoes of Eden. And uh, my thanks to the uh, OU Press and Geffen Publishing House.
as we get an opportunity to visit with him and discuss the book of Vayikra. I want to remind everybody that this coming Friday at JM in the AM, we're going to be announcing the uh, raffle winner for the NCSY Israel raffle. That's going to be taking place uh, during JM in the AM on Shushan Purim with David Cutler. You'll have a chance to win, if you've uh, purchased your ticket, a chance to win a uh, free NCSY summer, which is pretty amazing. It happens this Friday, Shushan Purim, 5776 over at JM and AM. More coming up. It's the OU Jewish Reaction Show, and this is the Nahum Segal Network. Liner with us. It's the OU Jewish Reaction Show. Wishing everybody a happy Purim. Reminding you that on Shushan Purim this coming Friday, the NCSY Israel raffle is going to be chosen and announced over at JM and the AM. Which means if you're in that raffle, I hope you are, go to ncsysummer.org for information. Uh, you can uh, be the winner of a free summer program in Israel. Pretty cool. Uh, Hart Levine is with us. He's been a guest of ours before. There's a project called Bring Back Shabbat. Hart Levine is uh, with us, and this is the Nahum Siegel Network. Hart, welcome back to the, uh, the Nahum Siegel Network. 
Thanks so much. Always great to be here. Still, still up in Washington Heights? Still up in Washington Heights. Still trying to bring Jews together there. Yep. Remind everybody about the revitalization of your specific synagogue up in that area. So Washington Heights, uh, it's an old historic Jewish neighborhood, but it's also the fastest growing Jewish community uh, in all of New York. And uh, we've been working with OU to try and uh, reach out to Jews in the neighborhood, Orthodox, non-Orthodox, and uh, we've we found sort of our, our home base is this uh, 99-year-old synagogue that we're using as our base of operations to sort of rebuild Jewish life in the neighborhood. <laughs> and it's working pretty well so far. Yeah, thank God. A lot of people are, I guess a lot of people are searching for that. Yeah, no question about it. When did you formally uh, name this a Bring Back Shabbat project? So, so Bring Back Shabbat is something that uh, we started probably four months ago, um, around December time. And this is more connected to the work I was doing on college campuses, which is about Shabbat and outreach and getting students to run Shabbat dinners. Um, and this is something that we've been working on for a while, um, and it really has to do with uh, birthright, which is... Um, technically, Birthright Israel is a huge project in the Jewish community, yep. and, and the OU has been involved in that for a while now. And we started to figure out some gaps that were that were, that were coming up, and and a need for follow up. And, and, yeah. and when the but, but students who return from, or I should say, well, people of all age, not just students, right? Who return Correct. from return from Israel after birthright. This is this so this is not a specific neighborhood project, right? It's not a specific Washington Heights project. It's really, I guess, throughout the Correct. entire country. Yeah, this is a nationwide, um, a nationwide project. Uh, what happened was, uh, birthright's a really transformative experience. I'm sure a lot of people know about it, or have heard people who've been on it, or have been on it, and it's uh, people say, "Wow, this like, uh, opened up their lives, their eyes to what Jewish life could be." Um, but what's what's actually staggering is there's a report done on what happens after the trip. Um, and I saw one study that Birthright did, which, which found that 50% of people came back and did nothing else Jewish. Right. Um, which is pretty, which is, which is amazing. I mean, the fact that people have such a positive experience on Birthright, uh, all of them said they had a positive experience, but yet half of them come back and do nothing. And there was never, um, there was never any formal follow-up. So there's always been a bunch of things. There was, it was, was never really, uh, there was. Uh, I mean, it used to be like a birthright uh, formal follow-up program. They sort of went through a few different iterations and closed and reopened and merged and closed. And then um, around a year ago, they closed permanently. Um, and they stopped doing birthright, uh, a birthright follow-up. And basically, they said, either everyone's on their own or they're going to have to find some, some local people to do stuff for you. Right. Which, which I, I guess I understand it's hard to do it, but the OU and the OU was looking at this, and we were looking at this, and we said, you, you know what? I wonder if there's a way that we could sort of fill this void and help help uh, sort of reinvigorate birthright follow-up using the model that we've been uh, doing so successfully on college campuses, which is getting students to run a Shabbat dinner. Right. So what do you do? You literally take lists of those who've been on birthright and start contacting them? Yeah, well, the complicated thing is that getting the information is tricky. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, so A, birthright's very very particular about who can access their information, and usually the answer is nobody. Um, and then also each provider, because there's, there's 10 or 15 different birthright providers, and each one sort of uh, wants to own their own data, doesn't want to share with other people. Um, and actually, um, Rabbi Dave Felsenthal from the OU was actually very visionary. He started reaching out to all the different organizers and saying, hey, let's all work together. Let's all share our data together. That way we together can sort of like 
maybe like, uh, you know, let's make it our destiny and create a, uh, a new birthright follow-up platform. Right. Um, what we've been trying to do is through there, but still it's a little bit tricky going through the organizers. Um, so we've been also just getting people through word of mouth and flyers and Facebook advertisements. Uh, and also speaking to, to uh, people who staff the trips and getting them to tell their uh, their friends and their participants. Hart Levine is Hart Levine is with us to bring back Shabbat project. Okay, so how has it gone? How what have been some of the successes in terms of trying to arrange for a Shabbat meal and getting people to come? Great. So um, we just started uh, I guess um, this semester, this college semester, and we got a website up, and it's actually been great. We've gotten uh, a couple of dozen people already signed up and running meals um, from colleges all over the country. Um, so we're opening up this up to college campuses only. Uh, anyone on the college campus can, can run a Shabbat dinner if they came back from birthright. Um, and we've had, it's interesting, sort of the range of people. It, 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 it ranges from people uh, at colleges with large Jewish communities um, to colleges where there's no Jewish community, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which, which is a really interesting feature. Give me some examples out there. Um, so we had someone from, we had people from Harvard and from Penn State and from, uh, someone from the University of America in Samoa signed up, uh, <laughs> University of Minnesota. So really, really across the country, Buffalo, Northeastern. And you're, and you're able to provide this through who? I mean, you'd use the JLIC couples. Like how do you, how do you go ahead and provide them with what they're looking for, especially if they're from a very small Jewish population campus? Right. So that, that's like sort of the million dollar question. So what we do is, yeah, we work with these with these students. Uh, we have someone working on the staff, Lily um, Lazowski, who's a real all star, um, and she coaches these people when they, when they sign up. They say, "I want to run a Shabbat dinner," so she'll talk to them. You know, like, what does it mean to run a Shabbat dinner? And sending them materials and websites and and further readings and interesting videos um, to sort of guide these these people who just came back from Bracewright and probably are you know, pretty inspired about Judaism uh, to give them some of the tools they need to translate that uh, into action. Interesting, and they and, then, and they could end up hosting a very small number of people, right? I mean, it could happen. Correct. They usually uh, the meals end up being something between seven and oh. seventeen people. Okay, now, I, uh, now I'm starting to get it. Now I'm starting to understand. You know, so you don't need a hundred or two hundred people to make this a success. Correct. Correct. If we want something small, the idea is that um, a that makes it more manageable. It's hard for them to run a hundred a hundred person meal, but the idea is also that if you have a fifteen person meal. It actually can be a really powerful, transformative experience for everyone there. Right. Um, so, we, um, so we like trying to keep it small and intimate, um, which I think works works well, especially people, especially colleges where there is a halal and, and there is a chabad. Sometimes those could be a little bit intimidating if you don't know anyone. So this this could be an easier sort of entrance uh, entrance way towards further Jewish involvement. Is there a big advantage to putting this into the hands of the students? Again, there are couples and Hillels and others that are on campus, but here you're literally putting it into the hands of the students, those who you know took the initiative to go to Israel with birthright, and now they come back and they express an interest in leading this type of project. Yeah, that's a really good question, and uh, I think uh, um, I always go back to that to the line from from. From it's important to have teachers and rabbis, and it's also important to have peers and friends. Um, and the idea is that um, most campuses only have one or two, maybe three rabbis or directors who can be reaching out to people. But in a college with 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 Jewish students, like, that's just not feasible for three or four people to reach all of them themselves. Right. Yeah. And so to penetrate the, the, the market of, of, of Jewish students even further, uh, what you need to do is sort of 
uh, figure out a way to empower uh, uh, students to reach out. Yeah. Um, but also even furthermore, uh, I think for these students coming back from birthright, for them to, um, instead of telling them, okay, go find some local community that might welcome you in, that might, uh, you know, give you a, 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 a seat at the table or a seat in the leadership, say, you know what, we're going to give you the, 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 the tools to run Shabbat into yourself and to really own that experience that you experienced in uh, uh, Israel and bring it back to your friends. So I think it's, it's very important for those students, too, those students themselves who are the hosts. Hart Levine is with us, the Bring Back Shabbat Project, listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Show. Have you seen this up close and personal? Have you spent a Shabbat on one of these campuses? Um, I haven't been in the past few months, but I've been, uh, before that, visiting, um, I visited around 40, I think 42 college campuses in the past couple of years. Um, visiting students and seeing, and seeing what it means to students, for students to organize other students and to organize Shabbat meals and to bring Jews together. Um, and I've seen how powerful it can be. Jewish, li- uh, Jewish life on campus varies a lot just based on the campus, right? Based on it, even, even campuses with the same number of Jews. It depends on the atmosphere in terms of how, they're, how they are, right? In terms of how correct. There's, there's really vast differences. Whether there's a Hillel Chabad, whether there's an OUJLIC couple, uh, a lot of Jewish students, what the Israel uh, sentiment is like. Uh, it is very different, but one of the things that we found is similar is that Shabbat is sort of this, this great unifier. Um, whether there are a lot of Jews or no Jews, anti-Israel... Pro- Everyone loves Shabbat. Um, we actually had a bunch of students recently at a campus where there was, there was a whole anti-BDS campaign happening, and, uh, and some students brought together other Jewish students for Shabbat, and uh, most of the students were, were not involved in Jewish life, were not religious, were not really so uh, connected, but they found that they all really bonded over, uh, over the Shabbat meal. Um, and it was a great way to unify the campus, even with some of the divisive, divisive political stuff that was happening. I wonder if the group of 7 or 17 is much more appealing to some of them than the group of 100 or 200 at some of these massive Friday night uh, meals. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's something really powerful about a, about a huge room full of a lot of people. There's a lot of energy there. Um, but a lot of people, especially depending on their personality, they could get lost in the crowd. Um, they could feel a little bit intimidated or feel like their voice isn't heard or their concerns aren't met. And so when you have a smaller crowd, every single person feels like this is like this Shabbat dinner was made for me. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a really meaningful experience. Was, um, <laughs> that makes sense. Hart Levine, Bring Back Shabbat Project, is with us, talking about the college campuses and uh, attracting people to Shabbat. Um, some of the leaders, I assume, had never, had likely, I should be careful how I say this, had likely never experienced their own Shabbat service, their own Shabbat, yeah. right? They, yep. They're now yeah. they're now asking about leading their own, and they've never had it themselves. Correct. So that's that is a very good point. I think that we that, that we have to think very carefully about because in the past we had a lot of folks who grew up with Judaism and grew up doing Shabbat every week, and here it's people who are really inspired and really excited. But the first Shabbat was was maybe a month ago. Um, so one of the other things that we're doing is we're working in partnership with the OUJLIC rabbis at campus is, and the Hillels and the Chabad, and, and the more rabbis and the H rabbis and all of the Olami networks, to help connect these students to rabbis on their campuses. The, that way the rabbi can meet with them on a Thursday before the meal, or maybe come by during the meal and stop by, to create a sort of partnership where the students can sort of bring their friends, and they're tapped into all the student networks, and they have this excitement, where they can then bring in the rabbi or the director to help give them some guidance. Yeah, no question about it. I'm sure JLIC uh, couples have welcomed this program uh, with open arms, right? Yeah, they're they're really excited about it. And I think I think OJIC is really excited about 
the, the possibility of, of student leadership and getting students to sort of take the reins of Jewish life on their campus. Um, and this is also a whole new population. Uh, at Birthright alumni, sort of, uh, this, this, um, no one really knows what to do with it or, or, or how to do it. Um, and so people are really excited about working with Birthright alumni. Ah, uh, it's interesting. I wonder how many of them are actually going to want to stay connected in the long run, you know? I know. It is It is a really good question. Um, but, but like the story of the starfish, uh, where someone's walking on, on the beach and there's a million starfish dying, and he throws one starfish back in the water, and, and he says, at least for that one, it made a difference. Yeah, no so, yeah, th- th- there are 500,000 people coming back from birthright, and um, how are we possibly going to reach all of them, and you know, what's one Shabbat dinner going to do in the long run? Um, I don't know, but I know for those for those 12 or 17 people who came to that one Shabbat dinner that week in this university in the middle of nowhere, for them to go from having nothing to now being a part of Shabbat and 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 bring back some of that excitement that they felt on Birthright, I, I think that could be the spark that can um, really start a whole journey of reconnection. Oh, I agree with that. And on top of that, they made the commitment and jumped in, so to speak, when it came to Birthright. And uh, hopefully, they'll do the same thing here. I mean, they've already exactly. they've already yeah. they've already demonstrated that they're looking for something and they want to you know actively pursue it. So, yes. Yeah, so we think if we give them the tools and and uh, a little bit of pushing, um, that these Shabbat dinners can really can really be the next step forward for them. Hart Levine, the Bring Back Shabbat Project, uh, another great uh, innovation over at the OU, taking Birthright alumni and giving them the tools and the inspiration to go ahead and lead their own Shabbat, uh, Shabbat meal for their, uh, for their friends and colleagues. Sounds like a great idea, and it sounds like it's working pretty well so far. Yeah, we're just getting started, but already we've gotten a lot of good feedback. Uh, a lot of the other, what's interesting is, is not just not just OU uh, Israel Free Spirit uh, alumni who are signing up, but alumni from all different birthright trips. I think this appeals to a wide audience. How do people um, get information about all this? How do people get information about all this? So the, the best thing is to go to bringbackshabbat.org, um, to our website, and you can sign up there. You can get more information, and you can contact Lily. Um, I guess that's the best thing. Uh, you can email Lily, L-I-L-Y, at, bringback, at bringbackshabbat.org. Um, she's the one really working on the ground with the, with the students and setting out the information and, and sort of helping coach them and guide them and, and connect them. Um, but, but definitely bringbackshabbat.org. Um, or you can find us on Facebook, Bring Back Shabbat. Also, Instagram, there's a lot of uh, cool photos and recipes for, for Shabbat. We've been compiling a lot of information. Um, bring back Shabbat. Social media, it's Bring Back Shabbat. The website, bringbackshabbat.org. Email, it's lily at bringbackshabbat.org. Hart Levine, always interesting speaking to you, and you're always doing good, innovative stuff for the young people out there, and it's much appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Malcolm. Hart Levine, uh, bringbackshabbat.org, another great OU initiative. Seems that uh, he's always behind some great initiative, and here, here you have one that's doing quite a job with uh, both birthright alumni and um, and general college students who want to go ahead and continue something of a Jewish tradition, in this case, leading a Shabbat dinner and arranging for and inviting their colleagues and friends to a Shabbat dinner. More coming up. You're listening to the Nachum Siegel Network. It's the OU Jewish Reaction Show. A reminder, it is coming Friday on Shushan Purim. We draw the winner of the raffle for the big NCSY Israel trip. It's being picked this Friday. Go to ncsysummer.org, ncsysummer.org for information. You have a chance to win this coming Friday. Make sure you have your raffle ticket in hand and tune in this Friday to see who wins. More coming up. This is the Nahum Segal Network.
little bit of Soul Farm here. It's an Alchem Siegel Network. You are listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Show. My thanks, Rabbi Khan, and to Hart Levine for joining us. Happy Purim, everybody. OU Jewish Reaction Show, Tuesdays, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, right after JM in the AM. Make sure to always be tuned in to the Nachum Siegel Network.